Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein to Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. It is great to be bringing science to you again this week, and we have a bumper show for you. This is going to be our fifth installment of our 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program. We give them all about a minute. I take about a minute. It's going to take about 40 minutes of the show all up, and we are going to go through so much science. It is hard to get my head around at this point. I should say uh, this group is the one that we selected from a very large number of applicants. Applications. And a big thank you to all of those people who applied to be part of the 20 in 20 program, something we're now running probably three times a year, maybe more, depending on how we go. And it's a great opportunity for PhD students to get their first sort of dip of their toe in the water of radio in a safe and nice triple R environment, which we enjoy and getting as many of them in as possible in the one day. So first up today, we have Emma Shimke from the University of Queensland. Good morning, Emma. How are you going? Good, thank you, Shane. How are you? Good. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for, for coming on. Now, you're working on the influence of sleep and how that changes our ability to sort of learn new words and consolidate those into adulthood. I haven't slept well lately. What, what exactly is going on there? What's the connection? Yeah, so um, there's research showing that sleep actually plays a critical role in memory consolidation. So, when we acquire a new memory, it's initially encoded into the hippocampus in the brain into short-term storage, and after an overnight sleep, it then transfers over to long-term storage within the neocortex. And so my research is looking at new word learning in particular because as adults we're continuing to learn new words and we might be learning a foreign vocabulary or new uh, terminology at university. So we're just constantly learning new words and I'm interested to find out how we can help boost word learning. Yeah, presumably there's elements here where people have difficulties in learning words as well where this plays into that. Is, Is that something you're also looking at? Absolutely. So in Australia, there's 1 million people currently living with a communication disorder Mm. and it can have a significant impact on a person's quality of life. Yeah. And does that mean that we, you know, we have to have sleep to drill those words in? Like if, if I don't sleep well for a few days, am I in trouble or is it something we can kind of catch up on? Yeah, so um, my PhD in particular is just looking at comparing um, going to sleep after learning new words compared to staying awake. So we're finding that in participants who sleep, they are retaining more of the words when we test them 12 hours later compared to the people who stayed awake. Yeah. Now, look, I think there's probably a whole lot of people on Sunday morning who are thinking, oh, dear, I had a late one last night. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's good that most of our learning's done during the week when we probably sleep more. Emma, thanks so much for being our first uh, one off the, off the bus today in the 2020 program. Thank you, Shane. Now, next up is Jocelyn Chan. She's from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Jocelyn. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Shane. Good morning. Good morning. Now, you work on this – well, it's, it's interesting. We're all talking about vaccinations at the moment, but you're not working on COVID. You're working on pneumococcus, which is a really severe illness. First of all, what does that do to the body? Yep. So it's one of the most common causes of severe pneumonia, which is an infection of the lungs. And pneumonia is actually um, the leading infectious cause of child deaths globally. So it's quite a serious and common illness. Yeah. And th- this issue of herd immunity, which we've, we've talked about a lot, this is where you get to the point where the infection essentially dies out, right? Where you can't, um, you can't pass it on. I mean, what, sort of, what things affect us getting to herd immunity? Um, yeah, so so like you said, it's um, it's about um, so for for an infectious disease to spread, it needs to come into contact people who are susceptible to infection, and it, and if enough people are vaccinated, the infection will eventually keep running into dead ends mm. and eventually fizzle out. Um, so. What's really important for scientists to know is the proportion of people we need to vaccinate um, to stop the spread of illness. And this is called the herd immunity threshold. Yeah. And what sort of things affect that? Is it different in different countries and different environments? Absolutely. I think so. What we already know is that the more infectious the pathogen is, that the more um, people need to be vaccinated um, 
uh, to achieve herd immunity. But what my research highlights is that the infectiousness of a pathogen is not just um, an intrinsic characteristic of, of the disease, but also a reflection of the setting or the context. Mm. And I think it makes intuitive sense that in a densely populated population or um, a setting with crowded living conditions, infectious diseases are going to spread more quickly and therefore we need to vaccinate more people to control the spread of disease. Yeah, greater percentages required in those, those dense areas compared to others. Jocelyn, excellent work. Keep it up. It's, it's something that obviously is on the front of everyone's minds at the moment, but not just for COVID, for other things too. So important that you're doing that work. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Megan Shaw, who's from Deakin University and also working with Zoos Victoria. Hello, Megan. How are you going? I'm good. Thanks, Shane. How are you going? Good. Now, you work on something I hadn't really thought of, and that's why it sort of caught my eye. And this, this idea of the sort of photographs that we use of wildlife and what's in them that makes people pay attention for environmental issues. I mean, what, what sort of factors really um, change the way we view those? So I think the main problem with photographs, it can be a great thing and it can also have some issues as well, is that a lot of research has shown that we tend to see photographs as reality, mm. even though people are constructing them and people are actually sharing them online in certain contexts. Um, and even though photographs of wildlife in particular can increase people's connection to wildlife and increase their donation behaviour towards wildlife charities, um, there are also issues with how they can affect people's attitudes and they can have unintended effects depending on what's actually in that photograph. Um, so some of the research that I've done in the past has shown that if you have a human in a photograph with an animal, that can actually affect how people think of the animal in terms of if they think that it would make a good pet. So the closer a human is to mm. an animal in a photograph, the more likely they are to think that it would make a good pet the less likely they are to think that it's actually endangered and therefore they might not support its conservation as much. Um, and also they're less likely to think that their animal is displaying a natural behaviour. So there's a lot of intricacies in there. It's a bit of a nuanced area, yeah, but look, it's, it's really exciting. It sounds scary. I mean, I, I assume there's also elements around, you know, the level of cuteness of the photo and the and the level of cuteness of, of the particular animal you're talking about. I mean, you, you may take a really beautiful picture of some insects, whereas others are not. That must have a huge impact on, on how people see them, yeah? That's correct. And we think that's one of the reasons why we tend to support a lot more mammals and cute and fluffy animals. Um, and those animals that maybe we wouldn't see as charismatic or as more beautiful tend to be quite underrepresented and then we don't see them as much because they're not posted on social media or they're not shown in magazines and television. And so we don't learn anything about them. Therefore, we don't care about them as much. Um, and then we can't support them and, you know, donate towards them and protect them. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So some sexy spider shots. Some, you know, we need some of these, you know, spider next to a human. People would be more, more inclined to help out. Yeah. I hope so. That's the goal, but we'll see. We'll see what the elements are as well. So it can depend on the yeah. background of the photograph and the context of, of the photographs as well. Yeah, yeah. look, re really interesting. Thanks, Megan. Good luck with that ongoing work. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Next up is Eamon Wooster from the University of Technology, Sydney. Good morning, Eamon. Hi, Shane. How are you going? Good. Now, you're looking at something, I suppose this is such a huge issue, but the way in which many small animal, animals, mammals in particular, are interacting with predators across the globe and I suppose with all the changes that are occurring. I mean, give us a bit of an idea of what, what you're specifically looking at there because I, I can imagine there's so many interactions that are going on. Yeah, so um, I'm interested in why Australia's small mammals are going extinct. Um, we've lost about 10% of our endemic land mammals, with many of those being in... <coughs> The 55 to 3,500, um, sorry, 55 to 5,500 gram range, known as the critical rate range. Um, and those guys are at a really high risk of extinction, and that being um, theorized to be due to introduced predators. Um, however, that kind of idea is um, still contested. So we wanted to test the idea of how small mammals are responding um, in Australia to where they're introduced predators are native and kind of compare those interactions. Mm. And, I mean, what do we do about that in terms of what effect can we have with regards to those interactions between the, the sort of predator-prey relationship? Because some of that, I, I suppose, is entrenched, but I assume some of it has also been caused by us. Totally, yeah. So um, what my research is unearthing is that, um, well, we, we know that dingoes in Australia play a really essential role to regulating um, trophic dynamics and ecosystem function. Um, we're finding that where we're, where uh, dingoes are persecuted, that small mammals are less likely to to, um, to survive. Um, and that's been highlighted in the literature before, but not in this kind of uh, idea where we take them from the native range to the introduced range of these predators. 
Um, so yeah, what we're what we're finding is that the preservation of dingoes is really essential to um, keeping small mammals in Australia, particularly within that weight range. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you know, in in a sense, some of that seems a bit counterintuitive to many people. They'd be thinking dingoes eat mm. those small, but but in reality, there's so many mm. other pests and so forth that dingoes keep in check. That there's such a such, yeah, such a beautiful um, companionship between those high level predators and some of the smaller animals that we need to protect. So, uh, Eamon, thanks so much for that. It's really interesting work. Keep it up, and hopefully we can you know slow down this incredible problem that Australia is facing in other countries as well. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks, Shane. Okay, and uh, now next up we have Audrey Pasitia. Hi, Audrey. How are you going? Hey, hey, Shane. How are you doing? Good. Good to talk to you. Now, you're from the Australian National University, and I think uh, you've touched on one of the topics I find fascinating, and that's this whole area of bird diversity. And especially around our region, we have so much bird diversity. And you're looking at some of the the sort of drivers for that. What, What sort of things have driven this incredible selection of birds that we have? Yeah, so um, a lot of the work that's been done today um, focused on separating the community. So we know that there's a very famous line called Wallace's Line, um, sort of in the middle of the Indonesia-Australian archipelago. And it's been observed since the 1800s that animals on the left of the line are more Asian and the right of the line are more Australian. Hmm. But there's not really much that's been done in trying to sort of separate the inter- intermingling um, drivers of the, of the um, patterns because... We know there's some geological history played into it, some environmental history played into it. We know that traits um, and this dispersal has dispersal advantages or disadvantages, but no one's really looked into sort of separating these effects. And so that's sort of what I aim to do in my, pro- uh, in my project. Yeah. And how do you go about determining like what's been a... I suppose, a, a driver due to humans versus what's a driver due to just natural ecological changes or environmental changes? I mean, can you separate those things out? Yeah, that it's, it's, it's really tough. But one of the, um, the things about the patterns that we're looking at is some of them are very deep into the timeline. Um, so it's more looking into sort of plate reconstructions, um, trying to see where the islands were mm. 50 million years ago is in the past. And that's sort of what we can do now that we have better models for it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a lot of birds at home? I, I only have one currently. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, it did. Um, but, yeah, so... Not, not at home, um, more in the collections and the museums. Yeah, amazing stuff. Well, Audrey, thanks so much for chatting to us today and uh, keep no up the interesting work. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is Matt Gabert. He's from Fleet, which is the ARC Centre of Excellence for Future Low Energy Electronics and Technologies and Monash uh, University as well. Hey, Matt, how are you going? Hey, Shane, how are you doing? Good. Fantastic to talk to you. Yeah, now look, uh, you're you're looking at something really interesting, which is some of these new types of electronic materials, but you know, taking advantage of some of those magnetic properties. Talk us through what you're up to. Yeah, so I'm working with a material called a topological insulator. And it's sort of interesting because if you uh, think of like a chocolate block, uh, the electricity that runs through it is like a foil on the outside of the chocolate block. And so it's not actually, it's not normal. It's not conventional. Uh, normally, you know, the electricity runs through the chocolate block itself. Mm. Um, but this is quite different. And uh, magnetism actually has a really strong way of being able to interact with these materials. Um, so there's a possibility of being able to create something that's uh, resistanceless. Uh, which is really, really useful in terms of applications. Right. So that means you put electricity through it and it doesn't give out heat, right? So it doesn't lose any any juice as you're running it. Yeah, spot on. And that's actually a really important property to be able to to utilize. Uh, so, you know, you, you think about your phone and when you start to heavily use that, your phone heats up and actually wastes a lot of energy in, mm. in terms of the heat. And so if you can reduce that ability to like lose heat, uh, you can save your battery life and actually save a lot of uh, electricity. Yeah. I think in I think in the world, roughly about 10% of our energy usage is actually through computers and electronics. Mm. And so if we can actually create devices that, you know, reduce that uh, impact factor, that's going to be really good uh, for saving, saving energy. Does that, um, does that also allow us to make the devices smaller because i know one of the problems in electronics is actually getting the heat out and as we get smaller and smaller you know that becomes a bigger and bigger problem will this help solve that potentially as well yeah i think possibly you know the sort of scale of the devices that we make um is, is really small you know sometimes we look at single atom layers uh, of materials um these topological insulators can range from single layers uh, all the way to you know maybe 10 20 nanometers which is uh, a few thousand times smaller than your hair width 
Mm, yeah, damn small. Well, um, Matt, keep up the good work there. It sounds really interesting. I know um, we've got a few people from the Fleet Centre today on the show, so we'll, we'll hear from those a little bit later. But thanks for chatting to us on Einstein Go Go. Thanks, Shane. Catch you soon. Catch you soon. Now, next up is Divyangana Rakesh from the University of Melbourne. Hey, Divyangana, how are you going? Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me, Shane. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, you're looking at the long-term effects, essentially, of poverty on the adolescent brain and how that affects cognition. This is something that you know we must see in many places all over the world. How do you how do you sort of filter that out from other things? How do you determine that that's occurring? Right. So that, that's actually a really good question because adversity happens in so many different ways, but all we can do is measure specific things, right? So we're looking at the effects of different types of lower access to economic and social resources. So having lower access to parents that are educated or lower access to living in a poor neighborhood, for example, mm. and how this then has negative effects on mental health as well as cognition. And that perhaps this acts through acting on brain development. But it's not all grim because we are also looking at the positive stuff like positive home and school environments, parental support that can mitigate some of these negative effects. Mm. And, uh, you know, do these two things both work over the same time frame? So, you know, if someone's in, in a relatively poor or difficult environment, say for 10 years of their life, but they have two or three years of the really good stuff, does that, does that sort of complement it or does it have to be, you know, at the same time? Um, we're not exactly sure because there hasn't been that much longitudinal, long-term longitudinal research on this subject. But we think that if it happens early on in development, so if it's early or late childhood when the brain is still super amenable to change and really plastic, then that's possible. And I think you can reverse those effects even after they've happened later uh Mm. shortly after they've happened if you're still developing. Yeah, look, I think it, it comes back to the thing of uh, wherever we can give kids good environments, regardless of their economic situation, the benefits are, are always going to be there. So thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with the ongoing work. All right, next up, folks, we're up to number eight if you've been counting. It's Erin Grant from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Erin. Shane, thanks for having me today. Good to have you on the show. Now, you work, uh, and uh, people might get a bit excited here, you work on special diamonds that can be used to sense magnetic fields. This is going back to the field I was in myself, so forgive me for for getting too excited about this one. But um, what exactly are you using here in terms of um, how do you you use diamonds to, to sense the environment? Yeah, so these are specially engineered diamonds. So instead of being um, purely made of carbon, um, they actually contain impurities or defects. Um, And we're interested in one particular defect, which has really useful quantum properties that make it sensitive to things like magnetic fields, electric fields, and changes in temperature. Um, Our research is really mostly interested in sensing um, magnetic fields. So we take this tiny diamond that we've um, engineered, it's only a few millimetres in size, and then we put um, a sample that we're interested in looking at um, on top of that. And so we can not only detect magnetic properties in this sample, but also do things like create a map so that we can correlate um, the magnetic properties to um, maybe physical structures that we can see in um, an optical image. Yeah, no, it's cool stuff. And, and when you say a defect, you're, you're talking about one atom misplaced or one or two atoms misplaced. I mean, is that something you can easily make, control, like have a single one? Uh, yes. Uh, well, not to the level of single um, single defects. That's slightly um, in the future, maybe we'll be able to do mm-hmm. that. But we can engineer sort of the depth of them, um, how many there are overall in the sample. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it must be phenomenal when you're, you're working in that space and, and you're literally seeing the effects of quantum mechanics, which is something that we... You know, we don't see in our day-to-day environment, do we? It's, it's, it's kind of cool to be able to actually observe those effects up front. Yeah, definitely. And it's very useful as well, not just from a sort of a fundamental perspective, but we can actually use it to do um, real-world stuff. Yeah, very cool. Erin, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with those, uh, you know, those giant millimetre-sized diamonds. They're, they're not as small as you think, but they're, they're easy to grow. So uh, thanks so much for chatting yes. to us. Thanks for having me. Next up is Greg White from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Greg. Hey, Shane. Thanks for having me. 
look, it's uh, it's great to talk to you. Now, you're looking at uh, scenarios, again, where these quantum effects uh, are used to, to sort of sense the environment, looking at how how the environment itself plays a part in, in this whole game. And I suppose this, I don't want to use the word entanglement, but I suspect you're going to soon. Tell us about what you're doing. Uh, yeah, so actually kind of the opposite in the sense that we don't want any environment at all. Um, so what I'm looking at are quantum computers, and quantum computers have rightfully generated a lot of hype in terms of what they should be able to do down the track, but uh, there's a lot of physical problems that need to be solved um, before we get to the stage where we can control these quantum systems such that they can solve these problems. Mm. Um, and in particular, these little quantum systems that we're trying to control, they love to interact with everything around them. And as they interact with everything, um, yeah, they, they cause it to break down. They cause you to kind of lose coherence or lose control of what's going on. Yeah. So what I look at is uh, the way that these, uh, these little quantum systems or these qubits, um, they kind of dynamically interact with the environment. Um, and uh, they do so sometimes in a way that the environment actually remembers what's happened in the past um, and affects the future. Yeah. And does that mean like when there's a change at the other end in the environment, there's a change in your system as well and vice versa? Are they that connected? Yeah, exactly. So uh, one of the, the big problems, and I'm going to mention entanglement, is that uh, so entanglement is a property where um, you can't just learn everything about a system by looking at one half of it on its own and the other half of it on its own. It's sort of a global property where you need to study both. So it can cause a lot of problems where you have this inaccessible environment that you're not able to control. Um, and so uh, it, it's all about learning to control the dynamics by looking just at one of the systems. Um, and that, that, that's quite a difficult problem. Yeah, look, it's super cool stuff. And I think uh, about probably 10% of the audience when they hear the word entanglement get a slight headache um, because that's just how it works. But it's, it's amazing and one of those things that I think Einstein called spooky action at a distance, and it really is. But once you see it happening in reality, it's quite, quite a phenomenal feature of nature. So, uh, Greg, yeah. thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with that really cool work. Terrific. Thanks, Jane. Next up is Abigail Goff uh, from the RMIT University and also from Fleet. Good morning, Abigail. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. You're working on essentially the use of liquid metals to make new types of electronics. Now, I've seen Terminator 2, so I know a little bit about liquid <laughs> liquid metals. Um, I'm sure that joke's a bit old for you now, but what exactly are you doing? How do you get a, a liquid metal to actually function? Okay, so essentially a liquid metal is just any metal that is liquid at quite a low temperature. So you've mm -hmm. got things like mercury, which is like, I think, liquid at like 18 degrees, but then you have things like gallium that's liquid at like 30 degrees and it's non-toxic. So it's ideal for use. I mean, I don't particularly want to work with mercury. I don't think you would either. Mm. Um, but essentially what we can do is, is because it is a metal, we can expose it to oxygen and let it oxidize on the surface. So you know how your car rusts uh, over time? Well, essentially we take our liquid metal droplets and we expose it to oxygen and it grows this really nice uh, layer of ultra thin nanometer thick oxide. So uh, you know, single atom layers. And um, we can easily peel this layer off the droplet um, and then we can um, characterize it and turn it into devices that can be used in, in computers. And so for me, what I am doing is I am synthesizing, um, hopefully, magnetic 2D materials. Uh, so I take my liquid metal droplet, I expose it to oxygen, I peel off that oxide layer that forms, and then I characterize it uh, using techniques such as what Erin uses uh, to test for the magnetic properties, and then I can make devices. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to make um, devices that are a lot more energy efficient than what we currently have, uh, like the silicon-based ones. Yeah, look, it sounds fantastic. And have you actually, is there a device that you've made yet? I know sometimes they're very simple, but is there something you've made that functions already at this point? I haven't personally. I mean, I started my PhD uh, a month before lockdown oh, right. um, last <laughs> year. So I have only just begun making uh, my 2D sheets. Um, but there have been people in my group that have made uh, these 2D materials, um, not ones that are magnetic that I know of, but ones that um, have other properties and can be used in um, transistor chips and other devices and things like that. And it's quite comparable to um, 
devices that have been made in, using other techniques. Yeah, um, uh, it's just really, really simple to do. Yeah, look, it, it sounds fantastic, Abigail, and it's it's really uh, interesting to see that work coming along and being done mm. here in Melbourne as well. Um, hopefully, we'll see some really cool devices coming out. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein Go. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you, folks. Uh, we're going to take a break for some music uh, just for a few minutes, and we will be back with the second half of the fifth group of twenty PhDs in twenty minutes. Uh, shortly after that, independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go Go on Three Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and we are running our. 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program. We're about halfway through the group. And 11th on our list is Blair Aitken. He's from Swinburne University of Technology. Good morning, Blair. How are you going? Hey, Shane. How are you going? Good to chat to you. Now, you are working on something really interesting. It's the use of benzodiazepines. Some people would know things like Valium as pretty common, commonly used drugs for a variety of circumstances. And, and I understand from you that about 88% of uh, the people who are using these uh, also consume alcohol. Now, the big question, of course, you're looking into is what does that do in terms of driving capability? Um, if we if we know we're under the limit in alcohol, what does that do to us? Yeah, so what we're seeing right now is a large increase in the number of people that are involved in road collisions uh, to be found to be under the influence of benzodiazepines as well as a combination of alcohol and benzodiazepines together. So... Yeah, we're, we're focused on looking at the combination at legally permissible levels. So, mm. in other words, we'll be testing therapeutic doses of benzodiazepines combined with alcohol and blood alcohol concentration of 0.04. So, when under the influence of these drugs, we found that many of the skills that make up driving uh, become impaired. So, this would include things like reaction time, tracking ability, visual functioning, and other higher order cognitive skills. Mm. So... What we want to do is administer these drugs to people and measure their driving performance using a simulator along with simultaneous ocular monitoring. Yeah, presumably you have to have um, those unusual moments in driving. Are they things that you test like, you know, something comes out out at you suddenly as opposed to just can I, can I keep it on the freeway is one thing, but being able to avoid unexpected incidents is something else, yeah? I think uh, we're we're losing you a bit, Blair. What you do? Yeah, we're we're losing your audio there, Blair. So we're gonna we're gonna move on because we're we're on our two minutes anyway. Um, next up is Rachel Farquhar from Monash University. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Shane. Now you're working on autoimmune diseases, which I think are fascinating because it's one of those areas where. So much has been uncovered in the last decade and the, you know, even the decade before that, and we're still learning. And the real question is around what sort of triggers them to begin. And you're looking at essentially sort of fat molecules. Tell us about that. Well, exactly. So what I look into is the way that exactly how fat molecules are being recognized by the immune system. Because in an autoimmune disease, Essentially, you have something which is already present in the body, in this case, fat molecules, and it is then um, being recognized by the immune system and a full-on immune reaction is launched. Mm. So what ends up happening is that the body is actually fighting against itself. So you have the body reacting to something that is already there, which can then cause quite a few issues down the road and can result in a lot of autoimmune diseases, such as multiple sclerosis. So what I'm trying to do is work out exactly how these fat molecules are being recognized so that we can have an understanding of exactly how this whole system is triggered. Yeah, and presumably, I mean, this only happens in some people. So there must be some sort of sort of predictor that you can go after to find out why it's happening in some people and not others, yeah? Well, that's actually not too linked to with what I'm doing at the moment. So with, the way, with what I'm looking at is exactly, we're trying to isolate just exactly how this is happening. Mm. It does tend to be a trend for autoimmune diseases in um, certain populations, or there does seem to be genetic components, but that doesn't appear to be too, uh, that's not too closely linked to exactly what I'm investigating. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great area to be working in. I think um, there are so many autoimmune diseases that pop up at various times. I know there's even been some reports with regards to our current pandemic and some of similar effects, you know, in certain people who have this long COVID exposure and so forth. Um, but one that affects, you know, even the ones where it's a small number of people that affects, the impact is usually pretty high. So 
Good luck with that, Rachel, and hopefully we'll we'll get some get some answers, um, some some more answers. I mean, this is an area for me a bit like neuroscience, where it's just exploding at the moment, and we really um, hope to see some great stuff in the next decade. So, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Wonderful, thank you so much, Shane. Next up is Singyan Fan from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Singyan. How are you going? Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me in the show. It's great to talk to you. You're working on the impact of climate change on groundwater. I suppose we, we kind of forget a bit about groundwater because it's not kind of in front of our face, is it? And it's, it's one of those things that's so crucial to us and, and the way our whole you know lifestyle works, yeah? Yeah, so my PhD project is mainly about quantifying the impact of climate change on groundwater resources. Climate change has a significant impact on the water, not only on the surface water, such as rivers and lakes, but also on groundwater, which is the water under the ground and invisible for us. But we really need to care about groundwater because we use it a lot for agriculture, for industry and domestic usage. Mm. So, yeah, I would like to investigate how climate change has impacted on groundwater. And this will help us to know how to manage the groundwater resources sustainably. How do you determine how much groundwater is there? Like, um, how do you go about that? Yeah, that's really a good question. Actually, we can't determine the total volume of groundwater and the subsurface, but we can detect the groundwater level changes. So this is, this can be done by measuring the groundwater levels through the bore, uh, drilled boreholes. Right. And my res- yeah, yeah. So my research is to identify the vulnerable or sensitive aquifers across Australia, which is sensitive to temperature and precipitation changes. And so far, we already found out that some regions or some aquifers located in southeast Australia and western Australia are much more sensitive to climate variations compared with other regions. And this indicates that if we rely on these sensitive aquifers for water supply, then we may face with the water shortage risks in the future climate. Yeah, look, it's really interesting and, and so important that we know which ones are more susceptible and which ones we can rely on during those times. Uh, Singyan, thanks so much for chatting to us and good luck with that work. Thank you, Shane. Next up is Rainel DeMello from the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Center, uh, Cancer Research Institute, sorry, and uh, Latrobe University's Cancer um, School of Cancer Medicine. Uh, Rainel, good morning. Hi, Shane. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. It's fabulous to talk to you. You're looking at something that I think is really fascinating, and that's the idea of repurposing some, I suppose, drugs that are on the shelf um, for treating colon cancer. How do you go about determining sort of which drugs to go and look for, ones that aren't used for colon cancer? So these drugs are actually identified using drug docking technology, uh, which is essentially uh, the structure of the drug is put on a computer and you identify where these drugs bind to and then from there you choose which drugs uh, can be used to treat colon cancer. Yeah, I can imagine there are some benefits here in that are most of these drugs ones that have gone through various sort of stages of testing so that we know they're kind of safe for humans at that point? Or are they drugs that you're looking at much, much earlier on in development? So as you, the drug discovery process is actually a long and time-consuming process. And it takes about 30 years, if not more, to go from identification of drug targets to all the testing in the lab, in animals, as well as in clinical trials, and then to the drugs being actually registered for human use. Mm. So by, by repurposing drugs that are actually on the shelf, we're cutting this timeline in half. Um, and that's why, uh, because because... For colon cancer, it's actually pretty urgent uh, to to find drugs to treat this kind of cancer. Uh, so by cutting that timeline in half, uh, uh, it's actually pretty valuable. Yeah. I, I, I know that uh, this sort of repurposing of drugs is becoming easier as we sort of get more into sort of genomics and our ability to test things fast and so forth. Do you think these will be tailored for individuals or is it sort of more tailoring for the cancer itself? So uh, something that we do is actually we use uh, cancer cells that have been taken from real patient tumors, and then we inject these cells into mice. So the mice are just hosts for human colon cancer to grow, and we test the drugs on this. So really in the future, uh, if we have patients that come in, we get a biopsy, we put put these cells into mice, test 
different types of drugs and actually pick the drug that works the best. Yep. That's something that could be really valuable in the future. Yeah, look, it sounds great, Ranelle. I know some of these cancers are really awful and there aren't good options for, for some of them. So good luck with that work. It's great to see all the investment too put into some of those drugs earlier on that uh, sitting on the shelf being used in different ways. Thanks so much for the chat today. Thanks, Shane. Next up is uh, number 15. We're up to uh, Lizzie Alishki. Good morning, Lizzie. You're from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Shane. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're looking at uh, the way in which, uh, I suppose, certain types of cancers respond to chemotherapy and, and, and how that happens. Talk us through what you're doing there. Yeah, so I work on this protein called P53. And um, when cells sense DNA damage and this is what how chemotherapy works um, p53 can get activated and cause the cell to do a number of different things such as die or stop growing temporarily or permanently we don't yet know how um, the cell knows what to do after p53 is activated so I'm trying to figure out what determines this response which response this this cells will follow yeah so presumably if you have a better idea of which way the cell is going to go you'll have a better idea of whether or not chemotherapy is going to work in the right way is that is that the approach yeah so um obviously for chemotherapy we'd prefer the cells to die and be eliminated from the body instead of the cancer cells hanging around and senescing or um stopping growing and still being there and potentially causing relapse in the future and resistance to your chemotherapy drugs or other drugs so yes we think this is um yeah important to know how if we can make cells become more susceptible to death over uh, growth arrest. Yeah, get them all to take door number three or something yeah. similar. Yeah, yeah. And is this something that we can, you think we might be able to control chemically? This, you know, something that we can sort of say, okay, we're going to administer this particular um, modification to a person and that makes, and we do that before chemotherapy so that it allows the chemotherapy to take? Um, possibly, hopefully. Mm. Um it would be very far off if it is what we can do, but um, firstly, understanding how it would work is yep. essential to improving this. Sounds great. It's important stuff. Just get it finished by next week, please, Lizzie. And thanks for chatting to us uh, today on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you for having me. Next up is Alexander Wynn, uh, also from the Fleet Centre and Monash University. Good morning, Alexander. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, audience. Uh, now, you're working, uh, you know, similar to some of your colleagues on materials that can, you know, essentially make things work a bit more efficiently and faster. Give us an idea of what you're up to. Okay. So traditionally, the materials you, you'll find in your computer, um, the atoms in those materials are oriented in a very periodic, ordered fashion um, that takes a lot of time and energy to create to create those materials. I'm looking at create, looking at alternative materials that are known as amorphous materials, where the atoms are arranged randomly. And, and because they're not in an ordered fashion, they're much easier and faster to fabricate. Yeah, I can imagine that. So all your colleagues down the corridor are lining things up painstakingly, and you're just chucking them in randomly. How do you, how do you make that function in the way that you want it to, though? So, so you see... Typically, to make these materials, uh, you grow, you create them on top of a very hot material, mm -hmm. so that way, when the atoms collide, collide with that with their initial material, um, they have enough kinetic energy to arrange themselves into an ordered fashion. Um, I skip that step of heating up and just drop atoms onto whatever I want to make my material off of and so that creates the um disordered fashion of my materials yeah does that also mean that you can make sort of larger things faster presumably if you have less sort of nano engineering requirements or patterning requirements um is that is that true correct yeah you can make things faster and you could create compositions that wouldn't ex wouldn't exist in an ordered fashion because the chemistry wouldn't allow it Mm. Look, it's, it's fascinating hearing some of these new uh, manufacturing technologies and so forth. Really interesting stuff. Alexander, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Next up is Emily Robinson from the Australian Catholic University. Good morning, Emily. How are you going? Hi, Shane. Good to be here. Now, you're working on you know this, the whole area of the brain, the white matter tracks. Very important for us. Allows us to think, allows us to think quickly and clearly. And the, I suppose the effects of these after the use of cannabis extensively um, in, in our youth, what sort of effects are we seeing? Um, 
So these these tracks are ones that undergo like vast amounts of development, especially mm. during adolescence. Um, and several studies have shown that adolescents who do use cannabis at that kind of young age have al- altered white matter integrity. Um, essentially, that these pathways are compromised or impaired to some degree. Mm. It seems. Um, I mean, this is an area where medicinal use of cannabis is becoming standardised around the world, and there's a lot of really good data on its on its value. And in Australia too, what, what does this mean in terms of in terms of that use? I mean, if this if this sort of starts coming out and saying, well, hang on, we have to be a bit careful here. Is it something that's a problem in adults as well, or just during development? Do you think? Um, potentially, um, I think it's an area that's um, has some amount of research. Um, what the the problem is that I'm looking into is we don't quite know if these impairments exist before cannabis use. Mm. Um, there's really little research that looks at white matter over time before cannabis use to really determine a timeline to these impairments. Um, so what I'm doing is using a sample from the Imogen Consortium um, to investigate this white matter integrity um, in adolescents both before and after commencing cannabis use. Um, or if they don't, and the effect this might have on white matter integrity. Yeah, look, I don't envy you the task of finding all the participants in that study who've had MRI images done, you know, before and after. That must that must be quite a challenge, I'm assuming. <laughs> a lot of trawling through data. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. Looking forward to it. Sounds good. Emily, thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with that work. My pleasure. Next up is Pierre Campagna from the Central Clinical School at Monash University. Good morning, Pierre. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. You work in an area which is, a, you know, is a significant uh, disease of impact on many, many people, multiple sclerosis. And one of the things I, I hadn't appreciated in this is just whether or not, you know, well, I suppose, when people are given interventions by their doctors, whether or not those treatments are correct for that individual. Talk us through what's going on there. Yeah, definitely. So as MS is a chronic disease, patients rely on lifelong treatment to control it. But we actually know that effective treatment right after diagnosis has the most effect in preventing their disease worsening. But currently it's difficult for doctors to find the right treatment for the right patient every time Mm. because there are many treatments available for MS and each patient responds differently. And one of the reasons that they respond differently is genetics. So even though 99.9% of the human genome is identical between people, it's that 0.01% variation that leads to differences in things like treatment response. Yeah. And is this something that you think we can, I mean, can can you kind of catch up, I suppose, you know, if you've been given an inappropriate um, sort of response early on, can you catch up later or is it critical that we get this first sort of five years right? No, it is possible. I mean, currently we don't have any treatments that can stop disease progression Mm. um, or actually reverse it. But there there are ways to see if you um, move patients from, I guess, a mild therapy to a stronger therapy, they will actually, um, their disability will regress. Um, But yeah, we do do know that that first few years after diagnosis is critical. Yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you is how good the diagnosis process is. I know with many diseases, people are on this sort of odyssey of diagnosis for a long, long time. How well does that work for MS? Yeah, so I'm not a clinician, so I can't actually talk about how well they diagnose, but obviously there is a criteria. Um, but we do actually know that the underlying biological process in MS probably occurs for at least a few years before they get diagnosed. Yep. And so that's probably why at diagnosis finding effective treatment is critical. Yeah, very important. Well, thank you so much for that, Pia, and good luck with that work. I know it's a condition that affects many, many people in a very serious way, and it would be really great to get those um, sort of personalised responses in a, working in a more effective sort of way overall. Thanks so much. Definitely. Thanks, Shane. Okay, next up and second last is Hannah Thompson from the Australian Catholic University. Hey, Hannah, how are you going? Morning, Shane. Thank you so much for having me on the program. It's been so great to hear about all the research everyone's doing. It's good to have you, and you're the only guest so far that's broadcasting from their closet. So I, I, <laughs> I appreciate the locale. Um, now you're looking at, at sort of again brain integrity and the use of cannabis and sort of moderate to severe use of cannabis, but also whether or not things like mindfulness and relaxation uh, can be used to offset some of the potential problems. Tell us what you're doing. 
Yes, so uh, my research has two key components. So the first is an examination of group differences between regular long-term cannabis users and people who don't regularly use cannabis. So specifically, we're looking for differences in their brain integrity and we measure brain integrity using a functional MRI technique called resting state functional connectivity. Um, So basically what we're doing is we're using a big loud scanner to map the activation of brain regions and this enables us to identify which structurally unique brain regions are working together in pairs or a network to then detect for the differences in cannabis users. Mm. And are there, I mean, do you see major uses? I mean, this, as we said just before, this is a, a you know, a potential, you know, inc- transformative um, option for many people in terms of pain management and other things that's being rolled out across the world now in, in you know, very detailed ways. I mean, are there, do you think there are particular problems cropping up from, from use? Well, so that's something that we're hoping to try and tease apart. So we're looking at people that are using at a problem level Mm. and we're running a second component of the study is a longitudinal intervention. So we're trying to understand the permanency of these differences that we're establishing at baseline and how they fluctuate over a period of time. And so that will help us to give a get a better understanding of um, the effects of the use. Yep. And mindfulness and relaxation, chuck that into the mix. It's got to be hard to measure. Yeah, yeah. So that's all all part of the um, intervention that we're running to try and help people to get a better handle on their cannabis use. Um, And we're actually still actively recruiting. So if anyone listening would like to participate, please send us an email to cannabis at myacu. Okay, you may get avalanched. You may get avalanched. I hope you get plenty of. Yeah, best case scenario. Excellent. Please thanks. Us. <laughs> thanks so much, Hannah. Good luck with that work, and um, I think it's something that's obviously going to get a lot more traction as we go along. Thanks so much. Thank you. And last but not least is Marta Mansouri from the Monash Institute for Pharmaceutical Sciences. Good morning, Marta, and I should say a happy new year to you as well. Hi, Shane. Thank you for having me. And it's, yeah, the, it's the, per, the Persian New Year, yes? Is that right? Yes, it is. It was yesterday, so feeling very festive. Yeah, you, you, you're feeling festive. And you, you're sounding okay, actually. I was expecting you to be a little rough this morning, but uh, you're, sounding, you're sounding pretty good. So that's excellent. Now, you're, you're, um, you're working on something I've, I've had a lot of interest in this over the years, but um, anti-malarial drugs and how well they're going. It sounds like things are not going well in terms of the ones we've got at the moment, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So we do have uh, a lot of medication, but we also have a lot of resistance emerging. So over the years, every time we've had a new drug come on the market, within a few years, we've had drug resistance. So we definitely need, urgently need new drugs. Mm. And how do you go about finding them? I know, you know, I have this image of people finding antibiotics because they dug up the right piece of coral or something. And, you know, we don't we don't create these things. We tend to find them. But the approach there at uh, the Monarch sort of Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences seems to be more one of sort of design and creation. Is that what you're attempting? Yeah, that's right, actually. So there's different ways of finding them. Um, for my project specifically, we already knew the target that we were interested in. And we're sort of using the target to build the drugs backwards. So, for instance, with my stuff, we know that um, the parasites inside the infected blood cell needs to feed off the red blood cells. So we know that if we can inhibit it with my molecules, for instance, because I'm the chemist, we can starve the parasites. And as a result, we can actually stop the parasite from working in the body and treat people. Yeah, now, look, that would be a fantastic outcome. I I can imagine, too, you know, because you're so much in the design phase, that allows you more scope if there is any resistance down the frac to, down down the line to make modifications because you you have control over the design, right? Is that is that true? Yeah, definitely. So the cool thing about my project is because we can we know the target, we can get crystal structures like, um, and then we know that if there's a resistance, it would alter this part. Therefore, we can make changes to overcome that resistance. But also with my drugs, we're, we're, they're dual inhibitors. So what they mean is they can target two things. So hopefully if there's resistance to one, 
it can work through the other pathway. Yeah, look, we're very uh, we're very fortunate here in Melbourne, you know, that we don't see malaria, but it is such a blight on the world and has been around for a very, very long time and changes a lot of people's lives, not for the better. So good luck with that work. It's great to hear the, the design aspects of it. I really love that. I think it's a, it's a great approach and although difficult, um, would yield some fantastic results if successful. So thanks for chatting to us as our last 20 and 20 member today, Marta. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us all. It was very interesting. It's absolutely my pleasure. Folks, we're going to take a break now for some uh, important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Uh, you are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. We're back. We've just finished the fifth 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. I've still got a couple of them on the line here. I've got Matt and Rachel. Uh, how are you guys going? Rachel, you okay? It was pretty, uh, pretty fast paced there. How'd that go for you? Yeah, I loved it. It was a really enjoyable experience. It was really fun and a great way to sort of think about how to take a very large amount of study that gets done and try and sort of bring it across in a short space of time. How long have you got to go on your PhD approximately? Um, Well, I'm actually in my final year, so I'm starting to – I've got a few months left. Um, So it's all started to become very real. It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And Matt, uh, how did you find it? Was it a fairly new and and freaky experience? How'd you go? Yeah, definitely a new experience, you know, but I think it's a great way to to try and, you know, concise the research. Um, Really important, um, you know, uh, opportunity because, you know, the the research funding that we get if we're working at a university or something like that comes from the public. Mm. So we've got an obligation to communicate that well. And I think that's really important to to actually have a go at. And, and, you know, you only get better by practicing. Yeah, look, it's great to hear someone um, partway through their PhD talking about the obligation of researchers to talk to the public. And I understand that that can be very difficult at times, depending on your field. Some fields are more more easily connected to the public than others. But I think um, the difference really is just the amount of work we put in. And if we put in a bit of work, we um, we can do quite well. And Matt, your, your work, I mean, I'm, gosh, see, this is what happens to me. I'm getting old and I forget what people are working on. But you're working on stuff that's in the sort of quantum realm and materials processing and stuff. I mean, that's not the easiest stuff to communicate, is it? No, you know, I think as soon as you get to like really, you know, small little atoms and things like that, you know, sometimes it's very easy to, to like let people tune out. So trying to find, you know, good analogies and things like that, I think is also a useful way to, to try and communicate those concepts um, you know, and, and do that well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, Rachel, similarly with yours, you know, I mean, autoimmune diseases, I suppose, are at least something that people are, are fairly aware of. So that must, that must help a bit, yeah? Yeah, no, it's great. There is a general um, quite a lot of interest around autoimmune diseases anyway, but it is our responsibility as scientists and as as researchers to be able to communicate our ideas clearly because if we cannot communicate our ideas clearly, then there is going to be a lack of communication between science and the general public. And the less communication there is, that's, that's not a very good thing. So we really want to try and increase as much of this communication as possible and really get those ideas and really get that research out there as much as we can. Yeah, no, well said. And I think uh, you have no argument from me. And I know most of our listeners probably know this, but um, for those of you who don't, most of our PhD students don't get a lot of training at any stage during their education in how to communicate either with the public or with uh, the media or anything in between. And that is a very big problem that we need to resolve. Thankfully, I find that uh, groups like this have so much enthusiasm and eagerness that they learn it themselves anyway, and and we get the result that we just did. So uh, a huge thank you to the team of uh, our 20 PhDs today. Uh, Thank you to uh, everyone else who also applied that didn't get through. I know it's a very competitive process, but uh, from me, Dr. Shane on Einstein and GoGo, we are going to keep doing this and get as many PhDs on this show as possible over the rest of the year. For now, though, remember science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.